Good morning. Happy Sunday to you. Thank you for listening to the podcast this week. Uh, special podcast today. Very special. I'm actually driving home right now. I uh, spent an hour, a little over an hour actually, down at the Camp Good Days headquarters in Menden. By the way, people sleep on Menden. You know, everyone says Pittsburgh's so fancy. Menden is like quaint Pittsburgh. I mean, Pittsburgh is like, you know, picturesque and like a movie. It's very quaint. I mean, Pitts- Pittsburgh is certainly quaint, quaint. But like Menden is, Menden is like, Menden is like Pittsburgh, but with privacy, I guess. It's like, it's like um, even classier Pittsburgh. Can I say that? Is that a thing? No, you know what it is? Pittsburgh is rich. Menden is wealth. That's how I feel after I come from Menden. Anyway, I was at the Camp Good Days headquarters with Gary Mervis, founder of Camp Good Days. We will tell the story of how he founded Camp Good Days after his daughter, Teddy, was diagnosed with and later, unfortunately, died of uh, brain cancer. Um, it's it's a very uplifting story. Certainly, talking about that subject, there are some dark parts, but Gary does a good job of talking about it, and it doesn't get overly dark, and it is apparent uh, as the father of a three-year-old, the last thing I want to hear is, you know, doom and gloom regarding children. So I want to assure you as a parent myself, this doesn't get doomy and gloomy. Um, this is very uplifting and it's just great to hear Gary talk about Camp Good Days. I, I, you know, anything, anytime anything is super successful and you get the opportunity to talk to the founder, I love it because you always get to hear those early stories. Gary shares a great story in this podcast about, you know, the first year, like the bus not showing up on time and there being literally no campers on day one or at least, you know, minute one of Camp Good Days. But anyway, um, you'll get to get we'll get to Gary in a minute. I uh, did want to just check in a little bit. I'm actually on a, a small miniature vacation right now. My wife and I taking a little 24 hour vacation. We went down to Naples last night, uh, actually yesterday morning, I should say, Saturday morning and doing about a 24-hour turnaround, stayed at a bed and breakfast last night, went out and did some dinners and some drinking and stuff, and uh, really, really good time. And uh, my wife did this kind of as a surprise for me, which is odd because it's her birthday next weekend. So, you know, it feels kind of like I should probably be doing something for her, but I will next weekend. We'll talk about that on next week's podcast. Uh, but yeah, quick little intro. By the way, I, I because this podcast comes out on Sundays, I always like to throw just a little football in there. And how weird was last week with the Bills getting beat by the Jags and the Browns crushing the Bengals? Just opposite. I mean, this is why the NFL is good. Because the second you think you figured it out, everything F's with you. And the uh, Bills now are the team that's got all the drama. And all of a sudden, the Browns are as healthy as they've ever been. <laughs> so it's like, what the hell's going on? Anyway, um, I wanted to take just a minute and talk about I was so honored this week to MC and also judge the Chef of the Year competition at Foodlink, put on by the American Culinary Federation Rochester chapter. This, you know, I'm asked to MC a lot of things and I appreciate it. And I, I do enjoy MCing things. I really do. I mean, I do this podcast. I do plenty of MCing. I have a 15 year history working in radio. I do. I say this all the time. People think I left radio because I hated radio. I didn't hate radio. I just fell in love with something else. And also, you know, I probably started to hate the idea of working for a corporation. I don't think I'll ever do that again in my life. 
um, it, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, you never say never, but I, I think it's highly doubtful unless there is some major incentive that I would ever work for a corporation again. But I love it. I love radio to this day. I love podcasting. I love emceeing things. And I was so worried when I left radio I wouldn't be asked to emcee things anymore. But I still get asked, honestly, constantly to the point where I'm turning things down. And this one was special because uh, I'm asked to emcee a lot of things. They're all great. Some of them are for causes. You know, Some of them are just fun little things. This was an actual competition. This was the chef of the year like criteria, big award. People plan for this for a long time. The chef who won, Sarah Kelsey, the sous chef at Genesee Valley Club, she cried when she won. One of the chefs who, who didn't win was like angry that he lost. It was actually a little bit awkward. Um, it, it was it was really something, but I, the opportunity to judge. And, and it's funny, I was telling these guys last night, I was like, man, I'm so unqualified. And and some of the other chefs were like, no, no, you're good. You know, you need the regular guy perspective. But then it occurred to me, you know, one of the criteria was sanitation, which is one thing. I actually have a couple certifications in food safety and certification and, and, uh, and sanitation. So actually I was qualified. So go ahead and shut up about that whole Polly, why would you be a judge thing? Plus I got to eat and it was wonderful. Okay. Anyway, that's all. It was a great event. Thank you to everybody who had me, darling. Um, Chef David Casper, uh, and of course, congratulations to Sarah Kelsey, big win, Chef of the Year 2021, American Culinary Federation. Okay, with that, enjoy my conversation with the founder of Camp Good Days and Special Times, the one, the only, will go down as a legend in this town, Gary Burris. You know, I'll tell you, it's like uh, I'm sitting out here at Camp Good Days. This is the main office for Camp Good Days. Yes. It's it's like a Gary Mervis museum in here. This I is, don't know about that. This is your life. It, is, it really is my life. I've, had a, I've been blessed to have a very interesting life. I spent the first 23 years of my working life working for the last of an endangered species. What's the last Republican speaker of the state assembly. <laughs> and we probably won't have another one in my lifetime, but it was a tremendous experience at a time when the Republicans controlled both the assembly and the Senate and Rockefeller was governor. So it was an exciting time to be a Republican you, you in were, Albany. You were going to, I mean, that was going to be your life, right? Because, well, tell me about how you grew up. Did you grow up in Rochester? Yeah, I grew up right in the city of Rochester. My, okay. my, I had the greatest parents, but, you know, they were both very hardworking. And, and what they could leave me was a good work ethic. They couldn't leave me any money. What did they do? For um, my mom was a beautician. 
and my dad sold men's clothes retail sales. He worked for, uh, his last job was working for the National Clothing Company. And, uh, but they were, you know, the greatest parents in the world. Uh, we never owned a home. We always, you know, had to live in an apartment. Um, but it, it, I wouldn't have traded it for anything. Um, I went to all public schools. Which, which high school did you go to? I went to Monroe High School. And what did you, oh, and you went with Brother Weeves, right? We just yeah, talked about he, right. he, yeah. yeah. Are you in the same class? And no, I was, I think, a little older than him, but oh, we were there okay. at the same, right. at the same you know, time. Do you have any Weasel memories? Of, yeah, his real, name, his real name was Weasel, we used Weasel, to call him, because yeah. he'd always follow everybody around, you know? <laughs> well, that was, he wanted to be with the cool guys. Yeah, well. And, and then, when everybody was graduating and going to college, um, he wasn't going to college, and it was right at the height of the Vietnam War, and he didn't want to be drafted, so he enlisted in the Army, and he became a paratrooper. And, uh, um, you know, it's funny, I was, I was working for the city rock while I was going to college, and so in the summer we'd run the playgrounds, and I remember I was running, helping to run 35 school playground, and he comes walking up Laburnum Crescent, and you know, we hadn't seen each other in many years, and, and he was telling me, and he was so proud, you know, you go to college, you have a class ring. Well, he had a ring from the army, the, the unit he was with. It's a big old sapphire on it, and he, it was his most prized possession. And for years later, I would ask him, where's your ring? And he, I don't know whether he lost it or <laughs> I he sold probably it. sold it. Yeah. Lost it on but, a poker table. But, but he, that was uh, before he was a poker he, he, he was, you know, the secret to Weiss was the same as he is now with all his successes, the same as he always was. You know, he doesn't put on a show totally. for anybody. Yeah. And he's loyal as the day is long. Mm -hmm. I mean, when, when he, get his own cancer diagnosis and the radio station wanted to do a promotion because in order to be treated he was going to have to be off work for a while mm -hmm. um, they wanted him to do a promotion with the American I think it was the American Cancer Society and he said no I want to do the promotion for Camp Good Days yeah. and it was kick cancer's ass I remember and uh, oh, you know it was it people was, were still asking for those t-shirts I just left there about two years ago two years ago people were still asking for kick cancer's ass t-shirts yeah and then he yeah. made the wristbands and yeah. I mean it was yeah. it was really and I I never forgot that and then one day we see each other and I had split up from my first wife and and we were talking and and he said he's out looking for a new motorcycle so I said you know I think I'd like because I used to ride a, a bike in when I was in high school and I said you know I'm, these new ones are pretty sharp I think and he says well he says maybe we can get a better price if we if we go together and he was talking I think to Kim Wyman at Harv's Harley Davidson out in Madison and and he, 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 we decided we were gonna do that. And I was kind of excited and I told my daughter, and she says, Dad, I'll kill you if you go out and get, out and get a motorcycle. So uh, she really insisted and put the, the end to that, to that dream. But while he was out purchasing his bike, he said, you know, what, why don't you consider doing a motorcycle ride to help raise support for Camp Good Days? And he said, I'll get Kim to be a sponsor at Harvest Harley Davidson, and he'd speak about it on, on the radio, and you know, we 
thought there couldn't be a better cause than Camp Good Days. Right. And, and so we decided to do it. And I think it was the best motorcycle ride for the years that we did it's ever been in this area. I think I think the biggest one, we had 2,600 motorcycles. And most of them were two people on a motorcycle. And then we would drive out from Kim's Harley-Davidson to the camp out on Cuca Lake. And we'd have like hot dogs and stuff for them. And it became a great, great fundraiser. And, and plus people loved it and they talked about it. And then Kim and Weiss were like a, an old married couple because Kim's kids started getting older. She wanted to do the ride on Saturday, not Sunday. And we said, if you do it on Sunday, you're gonna lose some potential business. And the two of them were going at it. And, and I said, "Whoa! I don't want. I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want to be in the middle of this." And yeah, you know, and because you can't, you know, by this time, I mean, you know, we was was a, a great friend, and I really appreciated what he was doing. But but sometimes he can be stubborn. No, Harry. So, no. And so <laughs> we, we decided that we that we wouldn't, uh, you know, do it any longer. But you know, for years afterwards, people had so much fun. Uh, there was, um, I think, the Canisius Lake Riders, some motorcycle group that participated, and they called up one day and said, we'd like to have a ride, and we'd like to keep the name riding for a reason. And I said, sure, because I thought, out of sight, out of mind, so right. at least keep it going. So the first, I think they still do a mini version of the ride uh, each year, and, and we, we were really grateful because, you know, fundraising has been one of the biggest challenges because, you know, I I was still working in Albany, and when my daughter, Teddy, who was my youngest of three children, got diagnosed with a, mal a malignant brain tumor. And in most cases, when a child is diagnosed with a life-threatening illness like cancer, traditionally it's mom who will put her career on hold or take a leave of absence to become the primary caregiver. But because my job and my career took me out of town, we agreed that I could be the primary well, caregiver. What was your exact job at that time, in the moment that Teddy was diagnosed? I was a, a regional director for the Republicans and the Assembly, okay. and uh, I was working closely with uh, Jim Nagel, who was an assemblyman from East Rochester. And so you were traveling the state, basically, every, every I, day. I had slowed down, because okay. what happened was, um, even though the person that succeeded my boss was Perry Durier, and he was from Suffolk County. And uh, um, when he left the assembly, um, the successor was Jim Emery, who was a uh, former sheriff in Livingston County and uh, had, had ran for the assembly and was successful. And he had asked me to stay on and run the Rochester office. And I'm, I'm enjoying it, but every week, especially during the legislative session, I would leave home Sunday afternoon to drive to Albany, stay overnight in Albany, and then Monday the assembly would, we'd have staff meetings, and then the assembly would go into session, and I'd stay up until Thursday, usually for most of it, they would get out, but sometimes they were done with their work mm -hmm. late Wednesday. 
And so I was, as soon as I could get the hell out of there, I wanted to go home. Of course, yeah. And I, and I look back now and saying, you know, how, how did you do it? Because now I make that drive. It seems like it's yeah. taken forever. It is but, often easy. But, you know, and I, and I was, I think we had a little Corvair then or something, a real small little car. And I'm telling you, Paulie, I would get in my car and I'd find an 18-wheeler focus on their headlights and if like the blue angels if that man or woman driving that truck went off the road i was gonna go <laughs> right off after him and it and that's it's how i made it i made it home a lot and so you know and you say to yourself why are you doing this are you staying in a motel room and and you go in and you turn the TV up loud or the radio yeah. so you don't feel like you're alone. And and you know, it's lonely. You're not there for your parent, teacher, parent. Well, actually, can I can I ask where you're going with this, actually? Let's let's rewrite history for two seconds. Let's say yeah. Camp Good Days never happens. Teddy never gets sick. Where are you today in that in that <laughs> alternate universe? I'd hate to say it, but if, if uh, I didn't change, I probably would be some kind of a coach or I'd be an elective office holder. Yeah, Governor you know, no, I don't Go- Governor Mervis. But okay. I would, I probably would have been a congressman or something, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but but that's not the way life went. No, life yeah. is what happens when you, you make other plans. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. it's it's the way. And if and if you plan too much, Polly, you when you think you got everything oh, yeah. in control just as sure as you and I are sitting here oh, yeah. something's going to happen oh, yeah. and it's, and I think it's the Lord's way of saying I'm the boss not you right. and uh, you know you have to learn the ability as one of my professors when I was getting my master's degree he just come back from Vietnam and he'd been an officer and he said you know I'm going to give you the secret to being successful in life you know, your parents are spending a lot of money for you to go to to go to go school. And he says, the secret of life is you have to have the ability to adapt and adjust to whatever life throws at you. Absolutely. Because it's going to throw you some curveballs. And that yeah, was... As you built Camp Good Days, though, that, that kind of happened, right? Because oh, you, yeah, absolutely. You, you were just... I mean, Camp, you're building Camp Good Days, and things are coming your way, and things like the, the, the motorcycle run yeah. would be, become a big fundraiser for you. Yeah. But actually, oh, yeah. can we go back to the kind of the founding? Yeah. Um, so, you know, what, it's, what it is hard here. Was, can I just tell you real quick why I'm, why I'm here? Because I 99.9% want to hear, hear about you. But uh, I have a three-year-old at home. You're the only one who wants to hear about it. I love about. hearing about it. I have a three-year-old at home, and I have, and also I'm a Rochester Rotarian, so we have the Sunshine Camp. Right? Yes, so I So I have a, a special place in my heart for camps like Sunshine and like Camp Good Days. Um, but also a three-year-old at home. You know, I've only been a father for three years, and I think back before when I hear about a child getting sick, before I was a parent, that made me very sad. Now that I'm a parent... Makes you it real makes sad. me physically <laughs> sick. Yeah, to, well, I mean it's it does. I mean nobody's nobody's ever expected right. for that for something like that to happen, especially to like in Teddy's case, a nine year old child, right. a beautiful little girl, and and for nine years, perfect, right? I mean, oh yeah, all three of my kids were they they were driving their mother and I nuts, but <laughs> but they were you know the best. Yeah. And and then out of the blue, I'll never forget it. It was a day in April. In fact, it was 
opening day for the Red Wings. And I and a couple friends had gone to the ball game. And at the time I was working for Assemblyman Jim Nagel. And we used to have a district office in the East Rochester Village Hall. So two nights a week, I would keep the office open for constituents or people who wanted to have questions or information so they could come in and, and you know, try, we try to get them answers or they could share their concerns with me. And I was supposed to go to uh, East Rochester for that night. And so I decided I would stop home on my way. And my wife said to me that, you know, she didn't think Teddy was feeling very well. So before I left, I went into Teddy's bedroom and I can see her and her face was twitching and, you know, she was frustrated because she wasn't able to control it. So we called the pediatrician and he says, well, we probably should get her to the hospital. Why don't you call an ambulance, which we did. And I'm thinking as I'm following the ambulance that she's got epilepsy. She's having an epilepsy seizure. So they admitted her to the hospital and they were trying to control the seizure. And it was just, I mean, it was, it was the weirdest. I mean, you're feeling so helpless because there's your little girl and she's, and there's nothing you can do. And so they, they admitted her, they finally got her on drugs to cause the seizure activity to, to subside. And then they wanted to keep her in the hospital to see what it caused the seizures. So she's going through a number of, of tests and, and most of them are, you know, non-invasive, nothing that's going to um, hurt. Yeah. yeah. Finally, they want to do an angiogram. And this, and this is how the good Lord has put people in, in my life that have helped shape it. The nurse, Michelle, who's our medical director now, all these years later, who teaches nursing at Fisher in the UVR, she was Teddy's nurse at the time. And she would work from 11 o'clock to 7 o'clock in the morning. When she'd come into work, she'd go do what she had to do, and then she'd come into Teddy's room, and that was my signal I could go home and get a few hours of sleep. Well, all of a sudden, this young resident comes in, and because now I have to sign something for Teddy to have the angiogram. And, you know, in, in medicine today, because of our litigious society, they have to tell you everything that could go wrong. And I'm listening to this guy, and I'm looking at Teddy, and she's starting to be her old self. She's starting to get better. And I said to him after I said, I think we should wait a little bit. We don't need to do it. And I refused to sign it. And he left, you know, he was kind of upset, but he left. Then the next morning, this guy comes in, older guy, he introduces himself, and he says, I understand you have some reservations about signing the permission um, to be able to do the angiogram for your daughter. 
And I told him yes. I said, I'd like to wait a little bit. And he'll never forget this as he's talking to me. He's putting his hand in his breast pocket, pulling out a gold cross pen, and he's putting the pen in the permission sheet in front of me. And he said, Mr. Mervis, we're talking about your little girl's life. Well, all of a sudden, it takes on a whole different dimension. So I sign it. I had to go and tell my wife that uh, Teddy was going to be on the next morning for this angiogram. So we we got up real early because we're going to be the first patient to get to the hospital. And uh, sure enough, as life would have it, they tried going in in the thigh to the femoral artery and going up to the heart and they inject some dye. And then they keep the excuse me, they keep the person awake so that um, they can see what's going on and uh, mm -hmm. monitor and and her veins were so small that they had trouble. Um, so she started becoming agitated. They tried going in the other thigh and then they finally just aborted it and said they were going to go back and the next time they were going to put her to, to sleep. And so, you know, I'm kind of sweating things, you know, because now it's serious business. And a few days later, the doctor who had come in Teddy's room gave me the permission slip and pulled his pen out of his breast pocket to sign it and said, Mr. Mervis, we're talking about your little girl's life was killed in a plane crash. Oh my God. Killed in a plane crash in Chicago, outside Chicago. He was going to the West Coast to present a paper or something. And there was a big headline. And all of a sudden it was like a, a, a signal from God, you don't have to have cancer to die. You know, because he, in his wildest imagination, would ever think that he was gonna die before death. Right. And that's exactly, you know, what happened. But it, yeah. it was always something that um, I remembered many times in, 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 in my life. Well, we got through it, and they did a craniotomy, which is brain surgery, to try to remove as much of the... Because it finally was determined it was a tumor. And Dr. Kurt Nelson, who was a neurosurgeon at Strong, and I became friends. And I'll never forget when he did the surgery. I'm sweating out the, was seven and a half hours of a craniotomy and he comes in and he said, Gary, he says, we tried, he says, but the tumor was so diffused into normal brain tissue. And you know, the brain controls who you are. And he says, I wanted to get as much of the tumor as I could, but I didn't want you to lose who your daughter was. And so he said, well, We'll start, a, I think it was eight or nine weeks of radiation treatment where she would go every day, Monday through Friday, at a designated time to get her radiation. And then it was followed up with some at the time. It was experimental chemotherapy. But Teddy did well after this treatment and surgery and um, she had a good couple years where I started Camp Good Days and um, 
She was the poster girl. Yeah, what was the, the original idea for Camp Good Days was? I had scotted up in the morning, going back to when I was working in Albany. And in those days, you didn't have the smartphones, and you didn't have uh, all these 24-hour news channels. And and so every morning when I got up, first thing I did is I go turn on the TV to see what was going on in the world. And I used to watch the, the Today Show. And one morning I'm up, I got the day show on, and, and uh, Tom, I can't remember what his name was, but he was the host of the Today Show at that time. And he said, when we come back, we're gonna take you to a very special place. And probably to this day, I don't know why, I sat on the bed, waited through the commercials, then all of a sudden I saw on the screen where all these kids that I immediately knew were dealing with cancer. And what he had done was, it was a doctor by the name of George Royer. He was a pediatric oncologist in, in Michigan. And he worked for the Upjohn Corporation. And he took children from the clinic and they rented an outdoor education center in Jackson, Michigan. Um, and I saw these kids fishing in a pond, you know, singing songs around a campfire. And all I could think of is I want to give Teddy that opportunity. So I finally tracked him down and learned that his was only the third program of its kind in the country. And we didn't have anything in our part of the country, despite the fact that we had Roswell Park to the west and Upstate Medical Center in Syracuse to the east. And then I was very familiar with what was going on at the U of R at the time because that's where Teddy was being treated. So I decided to put on my hat from the state legislature and I made appointments with the presidents of both uh, Roswell and Upstate. And I learned that there were over 1,100 children being treated for cancer at that time. So there was more than enough to start something for our kids rather than send Teddy to Dr. Royer's program. I was going to ask if you had considered sending Teddy to Michigan. But that was the whole purpose of my tracking him down. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But once I learned the numbers and I said, you know, we need this here. Yeah, we yeah. should do something here. So, what was so, year one of Camp Good Days like? Year one. It was probably, for those of us who were fortunate enough to be there, it is probably an experience that we'll carry with us for the rest of our lives. How many counselors were there? 77, and I had 60. That's a ton of counselors. I thought yeah. you were going to say, like, there were four of us or something. No, no. What yeah. happened was, you know, once I got the idea, yeah. um, I just went to my friends, and all my friends saw, hey, this is, he's excited, and, yeah. you know, because everybody was hoping there was something they could do. And, right. and when they made that offer, I'd say, hey, here's something you can do not only for Teddy, but yeah. for for a lot of other children. So we took 63 campers and I took everybody who volunteered, 77 volunteers. Because I figured we'd want to come back next year and we'd have some who were veterans. And we all embarked on this adventure. And I got to picture this. I planned one bus leaving from Roswell and we were using this private boys and girls camp on Fourth Lake in the central part of the Adirondack Mountains called Camp Eagle Cove. 
And the gentleman who owned Campy or Cove lived in Arondequoit, and he knew me. And when the newspaper put an article about um, my, myself and some others are trying to start this camp, he called me one day and he said, I'd like to talk to you. So I met him at the YMCA downtown, and he told me that he had owned this camp, and if we could wait until he was done with this regular summer camping session, he would be happy to donate the camp to us. I thought Christmas had come early that year. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, it was a beautiful camp. So I had scheduled one bus to leave Roswell to get to Camp Eo Cove, another bus to leave the U of R and get to Camp Eo Cove, and a third from Upstate Medical Center. And I had planned it so that they would one bus would arrive all about the same time. And Camp Beelcove had this large multi-use field, and I wanted the buses to come in there. And everyone who wasn't supervising the children on the buses, we asked to come to Camp Beelcove the day before. So they could have, we could have the final of two training sessions that we required all the volunteers to go through. And the second one was gonna be right at camp. And we we got everybody there we did it and then it came time for the first bus to arrive and there's no bus and you know in those days like i said we didn't have phones um we didn't have any offices we didn't have any paid staff yeah so i there wasn't even anybody i could call you've got a camp and no campers yeah it was i I thought about that bumper sticker you used to see uh, you say what happens if there was a war and nobody showed up you know and so that's all i was thinking in the in the back of my mind because i said when it comes time for the kids to get on the bus the kids are going to cry the parents are going to cry because for most of these children it was the first time since they had been diagnosed that they were going to leave the security of their of their parents and all of a sudden you know well then what i did was because i got nervous so in those days cb radios were popular so i had a couple volunteers who had cb radios so we sent one into Inlet, New York, to watch for the buses, and the other, another one sat in the parking lot at Camp Eagle Cove, so that when that car in, in Inlet saw the bus, he could alert the person in the parking lot at Eagle Cove, and they could let us us know, and we could let all the volunteers go to this multi-use field to officially welcome the the, the campers. And then the first bus came, the second bus came, the third bus came. And as I said, for those of us who were there, that will be one of the memories that we'll carry with us for the rest of our lives. Because here, nobody had been to this camp before. Right, you're brand new. And they're all coming off. They didn't really know each other. And and by the way, the parents have to be so nervous because I would imagine oh, yeah. when your child is sick, oh, you yeah. are controlling 24-7. Well, that was why I didn't want the parents. If I would have said the parents could be volunteers, I would never have to worry about volunteers. Yeah. Because what would happen, and it was happening in my case, is that once you hear that a child has cancer, since you can't do anything about the cancer, you become very overprotective you're not gonna suffer any other boobas. And what we would forget was these kids 
were just like everyone else, except they had this lousy disease. So they had the same inherent desires as every other nine-year-old. Right. And uh, and how great for Teddy to be able to, to have all these friends who are going through the same thing she's going through. Because I heard in an interview you did once, one of the saddest things I ever heard, ever, came out of your mouth. And I wonder if you remember saying this. You said that after Teddy was diagnosed, that her friends from school would oh, yeah. come to your house. Yeah, because I, as I said, I became the primary caregiver. So I would sit home with, yeah. with Teddy. And she would get so excited because school would get out at 3 o'clock. And she was ready. She wanted to make sure that you know everything was right. Waiting for her friends to come over. And her friends didn't come over. And finally, I just got tired of seeing her, you know, being let down. So I started knocking on some of the doors of her friends to find out why they they weren't letting and coming over. And there were two trains of thought. The first was that everybody pretty much knew that we didn't have any answers for, for brain tumors. And so the eventual outcome for Teddy wasn't going to be a good one like we all would hope. So in that case, and so the they parents, didn't want, yeah, they didn't want protecting their kids. Yeah, from they the don't loss. want their kids to have to deal with someone their own age yeah. who dying. But the second, but reason, the second ugh. was the one that was just blew my mind. Ugh. They really believed that if they let their kids come over to our house and play with Teddy, that something might rub off and they might bring cancer back Ugh. to their house. And, you That's know, awful. and but in those days, you didn't know, you know. And, and, Wait, and did so, they know at that time that cancer was not contagious? Yes, okay, but, okay. but people were scared. You know, yeah. good good friend of mine, Sharon Rivaldo, and her husband, Phil, they were both volunteers. And I remember Sharon telling me when she, she dropped her kids off to her mom, her mom was kind of pleading with her not to go because she was afraid that, you know, Sharon might get cancer or she might oh. bring it back. And, and because we didn't know a lot about it. You know, we didn't we didn't talk much about it, and and we were scared of it. I mean, people. I still think, you know, cancer is the most feared word in the English language. Totally, because nobody's ever prepared to be told by their doctor. And, and, and we don't have an answer. Cancer. That's the thing. You we know, don't have an answer for it. Still, it's twenty twenty one. We don't have an answer. Well, because as I said during cancer mission twenty twenty, when I learned an awful lot, is that we keep doing it finding the trying to find the cure the same old-fashioned way and what happens is what's the definition of insanity when you keep doing things the same and expect different results and that and that's exactly and is everything in our society and in our world I guess. money drives everything and uh, so we we haven't you know unfortunately um, made the press. Oh, I believe it's possible, and I think there are some people who have devoted their lives to it. And we have made made some real progress, but we still can't say to someone, "You're going to have cancer, and you're going to be yeah. you're going to be cured." Gary, can I um, change the topic a little bit? But to, back to the camp. You, yeah. So now you have to run this camp. Let's go back to that first day, yeah. first year. So the kids show up, yes. but I'm interested in the actual act of running a camp. Like, well, what? A, was, who, somebody's got to buy the soccer balls. And yeah. What are we going to no, have for lunch? We, like we had formed stuff. a planning committee. Okay. So we right. had that first meeting, <laughs> the information meeting at the Rochester Academy for Medicine on East Avenue when I invited Dr. Royer to come. And we had over 100 people there at 11 o'clock. I think it was a Thursday morning. And Camp Good Days was born. We didn't have any money. 
We didn't have a camp at that time. We didn't have any volunteers. Was it called Camp Good Days on day one? Well, no. It, it was We were going to start a camp for children with cancer. What did you call it the first year? Oh, Camp Good Days. Oh, it, it was, was okay. It was there. And I one day I was driving, and you'll love this. We had put this committee together, and we were trying to come up with things that we were going to do. And it came to me, we'll call it Camp Good Days, because the children are going to have, hopefully, a good time. And so it would be good days and special times that would carry them over when they were in the hospital or when they weren't having it. And this PR guy gets up and says, you can't call it that. You, you, you got to have the word cancer in the name of your organization. And I said, I'm not going to put the word cancer in it because I didn't want my daughter running around with something that said cancer, you know. And, and, and so I said, we'll call it Camp Good Days and Special. And he got so frustrated with me. He got up and he quit the, like, told me it never, it never worked. And, you know, oh, we all know what happened. Camp Good Days became pretty well yeah. known. And, it's the perfect and, name. In and, and our community. But, but it, it was, when you looked at it huh. and you thought about it, it was the perfect yeah. name, you know. And um, so there was Camp Good Days. And October 1st of this year, we celebrate our 43rd year. Oh, my God. You know, so something worked. Yeah. Um. I'm old though, but something. How worked. Uh, Teddy uh, was one year. Two she years, was. How many years she was she nine when she was diagnosed, and okay. twelve when she died. Okay. She was able to go to the first two years of oh, okay. Camp Good Days, and between the second and third year, she lost her battle. Okay. Um, are there any kids who attended Camp Good Days year one, year two, whatever, who are still around today? There's some still around, and as I tell them when I see them, they're part of a, a, a group that's dwindling, you know. Yeah, there's, yeah. and they're very, very special. But, but yes, there are some kids who have been with me from day one. When you did it that first year, did you always know? This you were going to do this permanently, or was there a chance it was just a one-year thing? Oh no, I never. The, the secret to Camp Good Days it was never really planned. Oh, okay, it just happened. And no, I I just wanted to do something to give Teddy a chance to be with probably the only people in the world who could really understand what it was like to be her, and that was other children who were dealing with cancer. So I I had no idea where I would go, and I don't think anybody who was with me had any idea. But the minute we put the kids on the bus to go home after that first year, all of us started talking about what can we do to make it bigger and better next year so we could take more children. And what happened was the the camp had almost logarithmic kind of growth. And what and the you know we all of a sudden had to make our first tough decision. The first year, most of the doctors, pretty much all the doctors, because we were doing this for the first time, um, probably tried to spearhead children who were doing well with their disease at the mm -hmm. time. You know, they they were off sometimes treatment. They um, and so they were long-term survivors, you know, that was that were doing it. But between the first and second year, a lot of the children who were there had recurrences 
of their cancer. And this time, the treatment options became fewer and they were much sicker. And so we had to decide were we gonna keep the camp open for just children who were doing well, or were we gonna accept any child with cancer whose doctor and parent or guardian felt they could benefit from the experience. And I remember having a lengthy conversation with Dr. Klumper, who was our first medical director. And we decided, it was an easy decision, um, that we would take any child, as long as their attending physician and their parents or guardians felt they could benefit. And I think because one of the reasons was Teddy had had the recurrence. So I wasn't gonna take Teddy and not mm -hmm. take other kids. So so we said that would be it. The other thing, when, when we were in the hospital with Teddy, I got to meet some other, other parents. And I was blessed because I had great benefits. And I would meet some other families who really were having a very difficult time because um, mom would have to take off from work or dad and and so I didn't want them to have to agonize over should they let their child go to Camp Good Days or make the car payment on time. So I said all the programs or services that we would provide would be provided free of charge. Well, that was a tough one because all of a sudden the need for money became even even greater. But here I'm pleased, 43 years. Well, 43 no, years. No child or their family has ever had to pay for a program of Camp Good Days. Do you have, do you have a hard time with fundraising? Because I would have to, because I would imagine the thing that would make it, I don't want to use the word easy, but the thing that would make it easy is there's nobody who's ever going to be able to say that this is not a great thing, right? Oh, well, but the other but side you have of more competition. Well, and I was going to say that people who have the resources, the kind of thing that yeah. I, I'll never forget. I wanted to be a guest speaker at the downtown. Uh, I think it was the Kiwanis Club. They met at the top of Midtown Plaza at the time because there was a time when, when downtown was a very visible and vibrant mm -hmm. area of our community. You had the big stores, the banks that quartered. And then you were just, you had Xerox, Bausch and Lomb, and Kodak were in the neighborhood. And so I kept saying to my friends, you know, just let me know, all I need is an hour to get changed and I'll be up there. So sure enough, I get a call um, because their speaker was the coach of the Rochester Americans at the time. And he was delayed, I think it was in Hershey, Pennsylvania because of weather. And so this friend called, he said, Gary, if you can get down here, we don't have a speaker, you can speak. So I zoomed down there and I get done talking and I think I'm, I'm doing a pretty good job. And I left it open for some questions. And this guy who I had known um, gets up and he says, Gary, our hearts go out to you and your family, what you're going through. But I have to tell you, I am quite bothered by your wanting to congregate these children any more than is necessary for treatment. And I'm telling you, my friend said to me, I was shocked, I didn't, never expected that. And I'm turning red and then I don't know why, I do know why. The good Lord said to me, I said, I don't know about you, 
I said, when I go home tonight, I've got a little girl who's dealing with a malignant brain tumor, and she's looking forward to going to camp. And But to the hardcore business people, they didn't see any value in putting money into something that wasn't going to provide any real real dividends. There, it, people never understand until it affects them. Oh, yeah. That's you know, if, sure. that, if that gentleman had a child born, <laughs> he would have understood Absolutely. instantaneously. Absolutely. But of course. He, he, yeah. And he was, you know, he was very successful. He was a partner in one of Rochester's largest law firms. But I'll tell you a real cute story. I think it was the third year after, right after Teddy died. And we were getting so much mail because we were blessed that the media in Rochester, Buffalo, and Syracuse had given Camp Good Days a lot of coverage. And also uh, in the February or March issue of McCall's Day year, there was a feature article about Teddy Camp Good Days. And it all came together. And it was the first time and the only time I've ever gone to the post office and picked up the mail and mail bags. So we didn't have an office. I used to go home every night after, you know, the kids went to bed and I'd sit at the kitchen table and I would open up the letters and and the and the donations. And I God, all of a sudden, one time, I get a um, donation from this lawyer, this gentleman I told you was the same person who that very first year's, and he sent me at that point the largest donation that Camp Good Days had received was his business card. Wow. And on the back, it just said, Gary, I guess you were right. <laughs> That's a beautiful. That's a beautiful end to that story. Yeah. Gary, um, I, I, I want to wrap. I want to be respectful of your time, so we'll oh, wrap up right. in a minute. I do want to just the way I started the podcast. I want to end it by just saying it's really cool to be in your office because you have so much sports memorabilia. Sports has been such a big part. Obviously, football coach at Fisher for forever. Twenty nine right? years. Twenty nine years. Yeah. But you've got some cool professional sports memorabilia in the other room. You've got those Orlando Magic chairs. Uh, yeah, they're from. The those are from the arena playoffs. Yeah. 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 Um, you have a Super Bowl ring? Yes, I was fortunate. It's, How did that come that, to be? I, when the uh, Super Bowl four was between the Chiefs and the Vikings, and I I can't remember where I was. Well, I do remember I was I was where the Super Bowl was, and uh, I would go out to watch him practice you know it wasn't a a big thing like now when the bills were at fisher and it was a major event and so i'm watching this professional football team and time lamar hunt was one of the owners and one of the original uh people helped start the american football league and his dream along with ralph wilson and some of the others had started the afl was that one day they would have par with the old, well-established NFL. And when the, the, and I became kind of friendly with some of the people, and when they beat the Minnesota Vikings, I think it was 23 to seven, um, it, it, now there was par because the year before, 
Joe Namath had made his prediction that um, the New York Jets were going to beat the Baltimore Colts in Super Bowl three. So you had the first two Super Bowls were won by the NFL, even though Kansas City was in Super Bowl one. Um, and they and the Packers had won pretty easily. Well, when Joe Namath and the Jets upset the Colts, everybody thought it was just a fluke and Joe Namath. And then when the Chiefs won Super Bowl four, now the old NFL had two and the AFL two. So in those days, the Super Bowl rings were left up to the owners. Now the league takes care of it and they provide the winning team with a certain number of rings. And the biggest reason for that is because um, the owners, especially in your days, um, sometimes they made these rings so big and so that it was just ridiculous. And what would happen is each year, the players on that winning Super Bowl would go to the ownership and say, hey, why they have a better ring than than we have? So, so the owners who above everything are good business people, and they went. I think it was Pete Rozal, and said, um, "We need to get this off of us. So you need to do." It. And so what they came up with, each team could design their ring, but each ring would have the same value for the winning ring as for the the loser, who would usually be the NFL, the National Football League champion or the American Football League champion. So I was fortunate enough to be at the right place at the right time and all of a sudden it became a very prized possession that sits in a That's safety cool. deposit box. Well, and then other ties to professional sports, didn't, is it Scott Norwood, right, didn't he? Oh yeah, Scott was, we became a really, really good, I became, my, my specialty was that I loved working with kickers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people don't realize that, I think they do a little more now when you watch a guy like Tucker who cooks for, or kicks for the Ravens. I mean, these guys got nerves of steel and the skill to manage. Oh my goodness, And yeah. they win in ball games. Yeah. And if you don't have that, they're losing ball games. Yeah. And so... Nor Norwood agreed to donate for every field oh, goal he made. He did. He would donate some personal money for every successful field goal he would make during the session. Yeah. And then Steve Christie, who followed him, did the had same. so much respect for Norwood, yeah. he, he did the same thing. Speaking of the Bills, uh, this airs on Sunday, by the way, what okay. we're doing right here. Coming off last Sunday's loss to Jacksonville. What the hell uh, happened in that game? <laughs> I think, to be honest with you, I think they began to believe some of the hype. Oh, yeah. you know, got to stay humble um, on the field. Well, not only that, but you got to work just as hard, and you got to be hungry, and you can't take who you're playing against for granted because the truth of the matter is the Jacksonville Jaguars are also professional right. football players. That's the great thing about the NFL. You know, and that's what they've always tried to achieve is the parity. Yeah. And it's even getting that way at Division One college football. Um, it's it's tough. Yeah. And I think they began to believe all that the media was saying about them. And the Bills, I will tell you, have got the best fans of any NFL franchise. They, they, it's amazing, the Bills fans. 
and wherever they go, wherever they're playing, there's always going to be a group of Bills, a Bills yeah, fans. They or a Bills. Well. And not even travel. They live in the area, wherever they're playing. Right, right. They just love, yeah. love the Bills. And the reason one day was, and we we take, I'll just tell you one our little story, and I'll let you go. No, no, it's fine. I I uh, was sitting right here. No, I was out of camp, and we had just purchased. The property where camp is now, Cuca Lake, right? Yeah, in Cuca Lake, in the village of Branchport, and and we were doing work down there, and I get a call from an old friend um, by the name of Wayne Meisenthal, and Wayne was big in you know finances, and he had gotten diagnosed with cancer, and he had just finished treatment, so as a little reward, he and his wife went down to Disney World. And he's sitting there one day, and he, he was saying, geez, you know, this is a place for kids. And he said, it's, wouldn't it be nice if kids who were dealing with cancer had the opportunity to see all this? And, of course, most families, especially in those days when they had a child with cancer, there was no way. I mean, when, when Teddy, we sent Teddy to Disney World, um, it was just her mom and her and her sister. Her brother and I couldn't go because we couldn't afford it. So he said, Gary, I was talking to some people and I want to send some kids um, to be able to experience this. And they told me, you're the guy to, to talk to. So I'm thinking he wants to send one. Well, I said, well, what do you talk about? He says, ah, 25. And so I said, yeah, I'll be happy to do that. So we started, which we still do to this day, a trip each year with mostly eight to 12 year olds with cancer. And we go to see the attractions in, in, in Orlando. And over the time, it's just, I mean, to be with a kid on his first airplane, oh, yeah. right? Or to see him smile on his face. And then like everything else, we were doing it. And then, you know, the, uh, they started an org called Give Kids to the World because there were so many wish fulfillment programs that were starting up. And so now you had kids that wasn't their first time, you know. So it was an experience because we had to say if you've never been there before, well, but we still we still do that and and it's um it's it's a neat experience. I tell people I have the best job in the world because I get to work with incredible young people and their families during a difficult time and to put a smile on a, on a child's face I was go you know is going through hell um, it's like the old MasterCard commercial it's you, know, you can't put a price on it. It's, right, of course. You know, and we we don't have to go down. I don't want. It, honestly, it's too long to talk about the what COVID has done. So we can kind of skip over that. But th- talking about how early years of Camp Good Days were, what were the current years? Like, so let's talk 2019. What were your numbers in 2019? How many attendees? How many counts? Well, we we probably we now have a number of different programs of in the summer, and we're a year round organization but in the summertime we would usually be around 1800 um with all of our programs who come to visit our own camp that's just summer but 
and well, the first year was sum- 60. See, our summer season really goes from probably the middle of May to middle of October. Everything's focused on what takes place at our camp on Cuke Lake. The rest of the year is when we would do all of our fundraising, special events. Like right now, we have our annual wine auction that we're doing. That's um, so that's how we raise the dollars. And I think in our and you know each year we have to go through a, an audit. And I think right the most recent audit was, I think it was. 91 cents of every dollar goes to help fund all that. That's really that impressive. Do. And the one thing that really hurt us the last couple of years was last year you couldn't operate right. a camp in New York State. Um, and most of the ways we would raise our money is through special events. Which and do. with COVID, you couldn't do them. Yeah. So it's 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 been hard, but Are you getting back on your feet people, in 2021 with that, or um, 2022, hopefully. Hopefully, but yeah. we're you know we had good years, and we're you know, and I think we've faced our fiduciary responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, and so we've been, you know, we we we've been blessed to have some good people, and as I said earlier, Paulie, at every step of the way the good Lord has put people in my life to help keep Teddy's dream alive. And and so that's what enables us. And Beautiful. and because, you know, we're willing to share it, I mean, I spend a lot of time with talking to people who, you know, want to learn what we've done. And I'm always willing to share our time and what expertise we develop because, hey, I was nobody, and people were always there to to help me, and so I feel it's important to give back. I, I'm actually wearing my big brothers and big sisters shirt today. I'm a board member there, and I I just I think what you just said, mentorship is so key. Oh, very much Not so. only the part where you're the mentor, but also the part where you're the mentee. I think it's important to be both. Yeah, absolutely. Somebody helped you. It's your yep. job to and help somebody back. else. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And it's that person's job to help the next person. I, Gary, thanks for doing this. You're, you're welcome. This was special, and I really appreciate you. I mean, this is really cool to be in your office at well, the Camp Good Days headquarters. Yeah. Well, it's... it's uh, I hope so. I said, I said to Wendy, I said, when, I, when I'm gone, Wendy, I can see you coming in these offices and in the moving van and having the biggest garage sale. That, She's going to make a lot of money off some yeah, of this memorabilia. Oh, oh yeah, there's, <laughs> there's, some, there's some great stuff here. I mean, yeah. you know, how many people can say they got a picture of Richard Nixon eating pizza? No, that's right. I, Look at that. That is yeah, pretty cool. And <laughs> keying up there. And, and then below that is when we took the kids to meet Ronald and Nancy Reagan in the diplomatic greeting room at the White House. I think this has to stay intact. One day when yeah. you're gone, Gary, this just becomes a museum. Is what yeah. it, is. it stays wow. like this. Gary, thanks for doing this, man. You're very welcome. It was great talking to you. Nice talking to you.